We start this new series today in the book of First Peter. It's a short series, four to five weeks, and then we'll be, we'll be almost through summer, and then we'll be into our fall series. But as we get going today, as uh, we're looking at how to build hope with our faith and with our church, or build our church uh, in hope, I was reminded of uh, building things with my dad. Uh, my dad was a contractor. And every once in a while, I would work for him, and most of the time, I, I would just mess things up for him, and he'd pay me, and then he would come back and fix things later. But one day, uh, I was sitting around on the couch. I was home from college for the weekend or something, and, and he came up to me and said, hey, let's go. And usually when he says, let's go, there's probably lunch involved, and so it's like, all right, cool, let's go. And so we go to this parking lot in the city of Brea, and it's just this corner, and there's an old building over there on the right, and there's this huge parking lot. And, and he starts mapping something out. You see, Dad loved to build churches. He built everything from residential to commercial, but his passion was churches. And he built churches all over California, and then he even built one in Rwanda right after the genocide, and he built a few over in Nepal. He, would, it was, he loved doing it. And, and, and so we go to this, this future church, but all I saw at the moment was a parking lot, and it wasn't a nice parking lot. It was a parking lot where the, the asphalt had cracked and there was brush coming through there. There was a tumbleweed because we get those down there. It, it, there was trash. It looked terrible. And he says, this is going to be a church. And I'm looking at the parking lot going, <laughs> okay, whatever you say. And he starts, trust me, and he, he brings out the blueprints and he sets them on the hood of his car and, uh, and, he, and he starts going through what it's going to be. And he goes, look, here's the basement. They didn't have basements back then. Or down there, they don't have a lot of basements. You look at this basement, it's going to be cool. He's taking me through the drawings, and I'm getting utterly confused. This is why I wasn't good at construction. And I'm like, yeah, this doesn't make any sense. I see a parking lot. Dad had the potential to see something that was decrepit and worthless and be able to see the value of what it could be instead of what it is. And so he begins, and then he, he, he shows me all of this, shows me where all the electrical wiring is going to go, as if I understood that. At this point, he's just rubbing it in. And, and then, he, and then he, he, he turns back to the front page, and he holds it up, and these blueprints were huge. He holds it up and says, can you see it? And the front page was this beautiful building with an old southern-style steeple that would be seen for blocks and blocks in the city of Brea. And I was like, no, but I see the, the picture of what it might be. And then he gets out a spray can and measuring tape. And he says, walk over to the corner, stand right there. And he puts a stake in the ground and stretches it. And then he starts with the spray paint and goes all along. And he he basically maps out how this building is going to fit on this particular piece of land. It was really cool because my uncle, his brother, designs the building. My dad builds them. And so he's spraying this out and goes, I don't know what your uncle was thinking here. But whatever, we'll change it, and, uh, and this would be better. And, and so he, he's going along, and he maps out this building, and he goes, can, can, you, can you see it now? And I went, barely. I can barely see it. And he's mapping out this building where everyone will be able to see, and this orange spray paint is everywhere. And then he brings the blueprints back over, sets them back on the hood of his car, and says, do you see it? And I went, oh, now I'm catching a hint of it. I'm beginning to see what this, this is going to look like. The blueprints were confusing. 
there was so much detail and it made, made it so difficult to see the larger picture of what was about to be done. And so he would turn to this and say, this page, but this goes, then he'd go back to the front page. This is here. And this is why it's going to be. And he's getting excited about this. And he was reminding me every step of the way, look, here's the minutia of the building, but don't get lost in the minutia. Go back to the larger picture of what we're building here. Sometimes in our lives, in our, in our process with Jesus, in our walk with Jesus, we can get so lost in the minutia of our life, in the minutia of our faith, that we, like me looking at blueprints, miss the big picture. We lose sight of what God's trying to do. This is what was happening to me. I was losing sight of this beautiful building that would eventually be constructed. I was looking at this one room, and he goes, no, 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 no. Look at the big picture. It helps us build what God is doing. In some ways, this is what Peter is doing when he writes this letter to the people in these churches. It it was written to a series of churches, and it was most likely first dropped off in the first city named of of Pontius. And then it says, okay, Pontius, after you're done, take this to Galatia. Okay, Galatia, take this to Cappadocia, and then up through Asia, and then in through Bethantia. And so he's saying, this is going to encourage all of these churches. And in case you don't remember your geography, that is modern-day Turkey. Peter's planting these churches in modern-day Turkey, and he's writing these letters to them because at this time, they're going through very difficult seasons. There's a man named Nero who's in charge of the known world, and Nero was not very nice to Christians. He would like to light them on fire and use them on streetlights. He blamed them for Rome's burning. And so Nero's in charge. He's coming down hard on the church, and he's trying to get them to say, look, Christians, don't get so wrapped up in the minutia of your trials. I want you to see the bigger picture of what God is doing in your life. Some of you have been imprisoned. Some of you have been killed. Even worse, some of you are, are, have been scattered throughout and you'll never see your family because you're taken far away from your land. But don't lose hope. So much has happened to these churches and so much more will happen to them. And Peter wants to flip their minds back to the front page of the blueprints and remind them of who they are and how this whole thing of following Christ is supposed to look like in efforts that they would keep moving forward. Sometimes the side effect of our suffering uh, or of trials that we go through is this sort of spiritual amnesia, right? We forget that we are children of God. And so Peter wants to remind them because often it's easier to take a step back than it is to take a step forward. And he wants to remind them, no, 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 look who you are. Keep stepping forward. And so in this section, we're going to see three phases that, building phases is what we called them in, in construction, building phases that Peter reminds the Christians of. He's taken them back to the front page. And we too can benefit from those phases. Our suffering in our churches is going to look a lot different than the suffering uh, that we see in these churches. Our suffering here in California, our trials are California. Wow. Our suffering here, <laughs> our suffering here in Washington and America and in California, if we want to call them America, uh, is still different than the sufferings we see in the churches in China and churches in Korea and churches in Afghanistan. Our trials are going to be different, but it doesn't mean that what we go through isn't hard. We go through different phases of trials and different things that we go through can have the same effect on our faith as it had for the people in this book. 
And so he starts in verse 1, and the first phase is to be reminded of who you are. He says, Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus to God's elect, the exiles scattered throughout the provinces. This word scattered is the word dispersed. Diaspora is, is, the, is the Greek word. What it means is scattered seeds. That It's kind of like when you take the dandelion and don't do this on my lawn, and you blow it, you dis- disperse the seeds, the spores out to be planted. He's saying, you have been scattered. And then he lists the names in, of, of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bith- Bith- Bithynia, okay. who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of his Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ, sprinkled, sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. This is a reminder to them It's not just a greeting, it's a reminder of who they are. What's it say? Chosen, set aside, sanctified. They're marked by obedience. They're sprinkled with the blood of Christ. There is so much here in this list of words that describes who Peter is talking to. But notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say to those of you who are in Galatia who came from this person and this person. He doesn't talk about ancestry. He doesn't label them by their ethnicity. He, he, he looks past their marital situations. He looks past whether they're slaves or slave owners. He doesn't call them landowners. He doesn't call them their occupation. He doesn't talk about their moral background, whether they've been uh, sinners before, or whether they've fresh to the faith, or whether they've grown up in the church. He calls them by who God sees them as. He reminds them of who they are. All of the other stuff is old news. Better yet, all of the other stuff, the stuff that we use to identify ourselves, our paycheck, our occupation, our ethnicity, where we've come from, how we grew up, all the stuff that we use to define ourselves, Peter ignores. That stuff doesn't matter. Sure, it's interesting, but in the grand scheme of things, when we look at that's that's the old building, and Peter's not talking about the old building. Peter's talking about the new building the one that's going to replace the old building. Peter shows them a sketch of what's going to happen. He shows them the front page of the blueprint. Why? Because they've been so honed in on what might happen to them when Nero has another fit. And he goes, don't, don't worry about this. And the most jarring phrase that we can look at here isn't the, 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 what, what Peter says about them, chosen to the foreknowledge, all of that is jarring, but the very first few words are something that should grab our attention. Peter, an apostle of Christ. You, you remember Peter, right? He's the one who abandoned Jesus. He was the one that spoke first, thought second. Uh, he ready shot, aimed when it came to think, doing things. He didn't really take much time. Peter, the one who denied Christ, the one who failed three times. But he's also the one who Jesus chose to write this letter. We'll talk more about that later. Peter's the one who screwed up so badly, yet he was forgiven, he was brought back in, and now he's being charged to encourage the church. It's nothing short of shocking, and, and I also believe it was intentional. Yeah, this is how they wrote letters, but I bet you Peter loved that first sentence. Yeah, I've been through a lot. Yeah, I've done a lot. If anyone has screwed up, it's Peter. Yet what does Peter write? I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Not Peter, a former screw-up, someone who did so many unthinkable things that you wouldn't even imagine. I'm not Peter who fought tooth and nail to keep the Gentiles out. 
And Peter, I'm one who has seen Christ, and this is the new title that Peter chooses to write. Peter's in jail most likely at this time, and so he's reminding himself, first and foremost, he's going back to the blueprints of his own life and saying, this is who I am. I'm an apostle of Christ, and allows him to see past his mistakes and to the bigger picture of what God thinks of him. This introduction forces them to look beyond the walls of their suffering or the walls of their mistake and exposes them to the idea that they are something and a part of something bigger than their own circumstances. Peter doesn't want them to lose sight of this, and we shouldn't lose sight of it either. This is why it's good to remind ourselves why we are living in this life. Why do we follow Jesus? What hope do we have in Christ? Yesterday was weed polling day at the Thera House, and by weed polling day, it meant that I was outside polling weeds. Uh, and and, and uh, the boys, Carrie and I split responsibilities. She took the house and, and cleaned the house, and I was outside, and the boys were riding their bikes trying to run over me as I have my hands and, and feet basically in the dirt trying to pull weeds. And I'm looking at this, and I, I, before I started, I, I had my five-gallon bucket where I would dump everything into and then take it to the yard waste bin. And as I'm looking at the yard going, oh, my gosh, there are so many weeds here. I was going to pull them last weekend, but we were living on the surface of the sun, and I thought that wouldn't be a good idea. The weekend before that, I just didn't want to. I was lazy. And so this was the weekend because every time I would drive by our house, I would look in our front area. We have wood chips. I'd be like, oh, my goodness, we're growing a forest. And so today, yesterday, it wasn't as hot, and I decided that would be the day. It was still hot. It was still hard. But what kept me going wasn't the fact that it was fun, because it is not, unless you get a really good one, right? Really, the long route, you're like, I got all of it. That happened twice, so it wasn't worth it. But what reminded me or kept me going was the larger picture of what this front yard might look like if it is all cleaned up, and it'll look better than it was. And so I I broke it into sections, and this is how my mind works. I'll do this section, I'll take a break, go stand in the shade for a few minutes, I'll do this section, and I'll mess with Judah's RC car that he's trying to mess me up with, and then I'll keep going. But before I started, I would look at it and go, It's a lot of weeds, but it's going to look so much better when it's done. The end result is what kept me going. And this is what Peter's saying in in this. Keep going, keep pulling the weeds, keep digging, because the end result of what God is doing through your suffering, through your trials, is going to be worth it. In our lives, there are going to be times when things get complicated. You are going to miss the promotion. You're going to have a loved one get sick. A loved one will die. That's part of life. It's going to happen. There are going to be accidents. There are going to be financial issues. Arguments will fracture relationships, and then you have to rebuild them. Peter's saying, don't get so focused on what you're going through that you lose the larger picture of what God is doing in and around you. Because honestly, it'll seem like our faith at at these times is the biggest culprit to what's happening to us. And we'll all be tempted to throw in the towel at some point. Stop going to church. Abandon the community. Throw away our theology because sometimes in this world, having a theology that is biblical is so countercultural that it's hard to hold to it. It's going to get difficult. And Peter's saying, remind yourself of where you're going. 
We must remind ourselves frequently and thoughtfully and thoroughly who we are. And unless we do that, the insidious messages that our culture gets, uh, sends us that our worth is wrapped up in our past or our mistakes or where we live or how much money we make will always eat away at us until there's nothing left. We'll define ourselves by our troubles. So who are we? This is the first phase. It's the fundamental dimension that what Peter wants to see us, what Peter wants us to get. We are people who by the grace and mercy of God have been specifically chosen for specific purpose. That's why you're here. Now, I don't want to get into the whole Calvinistic reform election. It's not what Peter's talking about here. It's not there. You can try and people do. It's, it's wrong. But that's not what he's doing here. Peter's saying, look, you have brought in, God has chosen the church to be this part of hope in our world, to remind you of why you're here, to remind the world of what God is doing. This is God's purpose for us. As Christians, we are signposts to the new reality that God is, God is bringing into this world, a new world that comes uh, into being through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Through Christ's death on one hand and the indwelling power of his spirit on the other uh, we are people set apart to be living signals of that world in which he's creating. And however daunting and unlikely as it seems, it is who we are as Christians. This is the front page of our hearts. This is who we are. You're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father to be signals of hope of what he is doing in this world of ours. But this blueprint carries some weight. Because of our purpose, we are holy in the technical sense that God has set us apart for a purpose and a practical reason that our lives must be transformed. But what the heck does that mean, right? Uh, it means that how we behave, how we live, how we think, how we treat others reflects God's desire for the rest of the world around us. It's not just us. We don't follow God in the way he lives and his rules, so to speak, just to benefit us, even though we are benefited. Why we follow Christ is so people around us can have the same hope that you and I have. And there's an encouraging part to this, and this is what Peter's doing. Again, he's given us blueprints to build our lives, and they just don't show us what to build. They also show us how to build it. And so the next phase we get to, we turn the page, and we see the first room that he comes into. Yes, you're supposed to be holy, but Peter doesn't say, just be holy because that's what you're supposed to do. And this word holy scares us, right? We think holy, we think we have to be perfect. It's not what Peter's saying. He says, no, you're not going to be perfect. God's perfect. And you've been brought into the family of Christ. When God sees you, he sees Jesus. So the holiness thing will work itself out, right? Don't, don't go off sinning because it's fun. Paul talks about that in Romans. But you're supposed to be holy. But why are we supposed to be holy? It says this. This is the foundation we build upon. Praise be to God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never spoil or fade. This is the inheritance that you have in heaven who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming salvation that is ready to rebuild, rebuild in the last time. It's one huge, long, 
run-on sentence in, in the Greek. If you have Grammarly, it would have lit this thing up. You need periods and commas and semicolons and everything. It's one big run-on sentence. And the first thing that Peter does, is says, be holy, and then he starts worshiping. Why is he worshiping? Why should we be holy? It's that word mercy. Why should you be holy? Because God's great mercy, God's mercy leads us into the next phase, which is hope. The strength of this foundation isn't built on how well you can obey the rules. The strength of the foundation of this building that God is building in your lives is built on the hope that comes from his mercy. And this is something that Peter's reminded of himself daily, and it's something that we should also remind ourselves. The Greek word for mercy is the word elios. Go ahead. Elios, you guys are getting it. It has a range of meanings from kindness to leniency to salvation and goodwill. God's mercy says that it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter what you're going to do. God's love doesn't abandon you. It doesn't make what you're doing right if you know what, it's, what you're doing is wrong. It says that God's love will still not abandon you no matter where you came from. That mercy is the same thing extended to you. And so Peter's showing us this first room as you walk into this building, and it's a majestic, huge reception area, ceilings as high as you can ever imagine, saying this is how big the mercy is. This is the mercy that we have. This is what Peter experienced on the shore after the resurrection. Jesus had risen from the dead, remember, and now the, the disciples go back to what they were used to doing, fishing. And they're fishing, and, Peter, and Jesus walks up on the shore, and then he looks at them and says, hey, have you caught anything yet? This is a repeat of his first miracle to them. And they go, no, and I bet you there's some wisecracks. Who's this joker? Of course we haven't caught anything yet. Why are we still here? And, and then Jesus says again, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. It starts sounding familiar, Right? And then they pull the nets in, and there's more fish than they can count. And then Peter goes, wait a minute. I've seen this movie before. And he looks to the shore, and it's Jesus there. It's one of the first times they've seen him. And so he jumps off, swims to shore, and Jesus is sitting there with breakfast ready for Peter. Jesus could have shown him the door. Could have said, wow, Peter, you really messed up now. (laughs) There's no way you can do this. But instead... Jesus says, mercy. And if anyone was undeserving, it was Peter. But instead of being pushed aside and benched for his mistakes, he's brought in further and he's given a task. He says, Peter, whose name means rock, upon you I will build my church. Upon this rock. His mistakes never robbed him from his purpose. God's mercy outshined his flaws. The mercy, Peter says, has given birth to hope because I'm no longer defined by what I've done in my past. I'm redefined by what God sees me doing in the future. That's the mercy we have. So Peter's writing this letter and saying, look, yes, you're going through trials. Yes, on the blueprint of your life, it sucks. But there's mercy for you. There's mercy that overcomes your mistakes. Just because you're going through difficulties doesn't mean that God's done with you. It's a hope. And he says, look what God has done in Jesus. 
And he's going to do the same thing for you. Not just that we're going to go to heaven when we die, even though that's great and that's a promise that we have, but in the sense that God's mercy that can resurrect even the hopeless parts of our lives now. This is the hope that we have. Resurrection isn't something that we can only look forward to. It's something that we can experience in the very depth of our being, the very core of who you are. Here's what I mean. And Peter goes, uh, uh, goes on for a while about suffering and the persecutions that are going to be faced. And this is a theme that will be picked up throughout the whole entire letter. And I'm sure we'll expound upon it in a couple of weeks. But Peter starts talking about trials and it's not something that we usually read and get excited for, right? They're not something that we sign up to take on unless you're some kind of person that enjoys going through hard things. And I, I don't think any of us are like that. We shouldn't go looking for trials. They'll, they'll find us. Instead, I, I think, hide from them. And, and, they'll, and they'll hide and seek and find you out. And so, but Peter says trials are coming. The book of James says this. Trials are coming, but what's comforting in this is that Peter talks about the trials that are heading our way, and he tells us, look, these trials are not pointless. They're not just God being angry with you and God being mean and God saying, Haha, let's see what happens now. That's not the nature of God. And the book of Job shows us this, that God doesn't send us the problems, but God will sure use them. Peter uses this metal working, this precious, a metalist, I think it is, a, a, a metaphor. When you find a precious metal, usually they're not like you're digging through and you're like, oh, there's a golden ring. That's not how it happens, right? They find ore, which is like the metal covered in rock. And then what do they do with the ore? They don't put it on a necklace. None of you are wearing ore as a jewelry right now. But what they do is they take the ore and they put it in boiling heat. And they heat it up, and then what happens is the imperfections fall away. They melt off. And then they heat it up again, and it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. The melt that melts away the things that don't belong, and this becomes a precious metal. It purifies it. Peter brings this up, and he's reminding us that we could take our trials in one or two ways. Either in the midst of our trial, we can say, uh, we could become bitter at God and say, God is doing these things to me. How dare he? Or we can look on the far side of the trial and say, what is God going to do in this? What imperfections are melting away from me at this moment? How is this trial going to benefit me later? And I'll be honest with you. Some of the trials that we've gone through, Carrie and I as a family, we look at that and go, we don't know how God's going to use this. But he will. There's been moments in, in our marriage going through miscarriage and death and family situations where we're looking at it going, I don't know how God's going to use this. But he's gonna. And that's the hope we have, that going through these trials, we are drawing ourselves closer to Christ and being refined, knowing in faith that we have hope that God's going to use them. God uses trials as a reminder, this is how we can look at it, as a reminder that through them he is molding and shaping you, and in the end you will be more like him. That's our choice when it comes to trials. Or we can lean into the trials 
and accept what God is going to do through those trials for us. Our trials give us the opportunity to become more and more like Christ, even though it doesn't feel like it as at the moment. This section is meant to be an encouragement uh, to us not to allow our present situations to rob us of what God is doing. Don't get distracted by your trials. Instead, know that God is still working. Look in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible, glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your salvation, of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Even though you can't see the point of them, even though during the trials you feel hopeless, even though the trials can seem impossible to bear, even though we feel that we should be cast out, sent off, forgotten, even though you think you don't deserve anything good, you are still receiving the result of your faith, which is what? In other words, you are still being resurrected. You are still being brought back to life, not just in the future, but now. And Peter sums up that phrase, or sums up all of this in the last five words. The salvation of your souls. And I got to this section in the, in the passage this week, and I, it was like, how can you not talk about the salvation of your souls, right? It's huge. It's the five words that you look at and go, what does that mean? It, it's a lot. It's a doozy of a concept. And I think last, last year we spent six weeks talking about this. So I'm going to try and summarize what this might mean uh, in a few minutes. Okay, you ready? Okay, let's define some terms first. Our soul, first of all, we have a body. Any idea what the body might be? You got it, okay? You're sitting in it right now. That's your body. Uh, the body is the fleshy part of us. It's the part that you and I see. Our soul is separate from our body. So Peter says, the salvation of your souls. Our souls are the seat of our consciousness. It's, the, it's our reason, our intellect, our will, our emotions, our, our senses process this, and that is our soul. It's our self-determination. Uh, in some senses, it's your personality. In Matthew 11, Jesus prays that we would find rest for our souls. He didn't say we'll find rest for our bodies. He says that you'll find rest for your souls, naming the restlessness within us that we all feel. And in the Psalms, Peter cries, or Paul cries, wow, I am not doing good today. Who wrote the Psalms? David. Thank you. David says, my soul cries out. In Psalm 63, says, my soul thirsts for you, God. Our souls are what need saving, not our bodies. When we die, our souls continue. Our bodies turn to dust. Our souls depart from us. Then when we are saved, okay, so that's the soul part of you. When you are saved, God's Spirit awakens the third part of you. I think there's a slide for this. Is there the body? It's there. It was there. So the body, the soul, and the inner side, the inner part of you is your spirit. When we're saved, this is what is awoken in us. This is what God resurrects first, is our spirit. Our spirits come into play here. In Genesis 1 and 2, you were created with a spirit. God breathed into you 
his very breath, his ruach, which was his spirit. This is what set you apart from animals. Animals have souls and bodies. Animals don't have spirits. This is why you and I are made in the image of God. In Genesis 3, the serpent comes along and brought about the temptation. And when he, when he's talking, uh, when he was tempting Eve and Adam at this time, he wasn't talking to the spirit. What did he tempt them with? Your soul is tempted. Why? Because your soul is where you want to have things. It's your desires. And so the serpent tempts the soul. And when sin happened, it broke the connection between spirit and soul. Because the soul was now separated from that. Uh, it, the, 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 the soul was cut off. It's almost that as if we look at that picture, when sin happened, there's a wall that goes around the spirit and the soul and spirit don't necessarily match up anymore. There's no communication. This is why the, the, when Paul says, don't walk according to the flesh or the soul, he's saying you're living lives detached from the spirit of who you are. And so in Ephesians, it says, Ephesians 4 says this, when we lost, when sin came in, we were separated from God. Our spirits were set off from our souls. Instead of the Spirit of God having full reign over our souls and our bodies and our intellect and our will and our emotions, our desires began to run the show. We began to live soulish lives. At that time, the Spirit lost its power and became dormant. But the Spirit never went away. The Spirit is always with you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, the Spirit of God stays in you. The image of God is with you always. Are we tracking here? Body, soul, spirit. So the first thing that happens when the soul is broken is God comes down in Genesis 3 and he says, where are you? And it's not as if God didn't know where they are. It's just now he knows that something is different. There's a problem because we weren't meant to live according to the soul. We were meant to live according to the spirit. So when we accept Christ... The first thing that happens, yes, we are set apart, we are sealed, we are gifted. 2 Corinthians 5 says that we are also made into a new creation. What happens? Our spirits are revived. Our spirits are reawoken. Our spirits, you can say, are, resurrection, are resurrected. We have the ability no longer to live the way our souls want to. We are made alive again. Our decisions, are, are, are the way we make them, can be governed and operated the way they were meant to be, the way they were created to be. Our souls are then being renewed and redeemed and saved, is what Peter would say. This is the salvation of your souls. This is why Paul says in Galatians, walk by the Spirit, not by the soul or the flesh. This is the resurrection that you and I experience now. This is the hope that Peter's talking about, that our souls are being redeemed. Or we can say it this way, our souls are currently, at this moment, still being resurrected. Our lives and how we live them are being brought back to life and reconnected with what God intended them to be, even though, at times, it might not feel like it, even though we're going through the ringer. We can walk by the Spirit and saying yes to the Spirit, and our souls are being refined. 
our decision-make abilities are being changed. Even though the building project seems like it's been stalled, it's still being built. There's progress happening. This is why Paul then says, he who began the good work in you in Philippians 2 is going to be faithful to complete it. Something has started within you. So we look at our trials through the lens of the Spirit, not through the lenses of our souls, which is a shift in thinking for all of us. Through our trials, we can have hope that we are learning a new way to walk, and a new way of walking will lead to our new new ongoing transformation. And because of our trials, this is what Peter is getting to, we are learning to live how we were made instead of living how we have fallen. And this is difficult for all of us. It's easy to live by your souls. It's easy just to gratify your needs. It's more difficult to relearn how to live by your spirit. And Paul says again, so I say, walk by the spirit. Don't gratify the desires of the flesh. Peter's reminding them that though uh, your souls want to abandon, your souls want to walk away when things get hard. The spirit says, I want to engage. I want to lean into what God is doing. Our souls say it's not worth the trouble, but our spirits look to the front page of the blueprint and say, yeah, it is. It's going to be worth it. Our souls say there's no hope in trying, but our spirit says that enduring the trials is your only hope. Our souls like to stand in the middle of the parking lot, which would eventually or will eventually be a beautiful structure of our lives and point not our... Our, our, our souls want to point to the problems, but our spirit says this too can be transformed into a beautiful structure that points to the redeeming nature of Christ. Because of Christ, we can have that hope. And when you feel the tension between what you want to do, your flesh, your soul, and what God is, and what God is asking you to do, living by the Spirit, this is where we have what's called sanctification. This is theology a lot, so I'm sorry about this. It'll all make sense soon. But we have the sanctification process. This is why it's sometimes hard to live according to the Spirit. Peter's saying, don't give up on this. God's building something in you. He's refining your souls through a renewing of your spirit. And this is our hope. And when it's all completed, when it's all done, you will stand as a signpost to the new reality of which God is building in you. This is our hope. This is our foundation. Because of Christ, we're no longer dusty parking lots with no hope or or no future. We're structures of what God can do in us and point to the redeeming nature that he's doing around us. Christ is our hope. Christ is our foundation. Christ is reawakening our spirits in us. We get it? Clear as mud, right? This is what Peter's trying to do. Your trials don't define you. Living the, the, the spiritual life is difficult. Don't let the complications distract you. Keep your eyes on the front page of what God is doing. You are a living structure, a living hope to the rest of the world around us. And today, being the first Sunday of the month, uh, we we take communion and and we started taking it together. Uh, And so today, as we take communion, uh, as we pass it out, uh, I ask you to take it, 
Hold it. Don't rip it open and take it now. Take it, hold it, and we'll take it together. So Scott, Nancy, if you want to come forward. Allow me to pray, and then we'll pass this out. So Father, we thank you um, that through our trials, through our tribulations, through everything that we're doing, we could still have hope that you are building something in us, around us, and through us. And so, Father, I ask that you continue to awaken our spirits. Awaken us so that our souls may continue to be saved. That through these trials, you are burning off these other areas in our life that don't belong. Your spirit is working through us and pointing out, saying, this is a, an imperfection that needs to go away. This is something that needs to be worked on. Our spirits can align with your spirit in all of this. And it's because of the cross and the resurrection that we can have all of this hope that our souls are being resurrected. Our spirit is reawakened. We thank you for the cross. Jesus' name.